This is an ABC podcast. As you listen to this, bulldozers, chainsaws, all kinds of heavy machinery are ripping through arguably the most important ecosystem on the planet. The Amazon, it's home to so many of the world's known species, but it's being destroyed and the people trying to save it are being killed. Hey, it's Dave Marchese with you for Hack. In a bit, you're going to hear from a young Indigenous Brazilian who calls the Amazon home. She'll tell you why we all need to care about what's happening there. Also coming up, remember Serial, the original true crime podcast. Well, there's been a big, big development in that case. And even if you've never heard Serial, you'll want to listen to this. First, though. Hack. There's a lot of work to be done to make sure that it doesn't happen again. They wreak untold human harm on Triple J. Were you caught up in robo-debt? We've talked a bit about it recently after the government announced that big royal commission into what happened. And you'll remember, controversial scheme ran between 2015 and 2019. More than 400,000 people were wrongly told they owed Centrelink money. A class action was launched. Then, a couple of years ago, Centrelink repaid all the illegal debts. But if you were affected, you might have noticed a bit of money landing this week. What's that all about? Well, as Joe Lauder explains, these recent repayments cover compensation, but for some, it's not much at all. Oh, I mean, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> um, and I just thought, well, this is wrong. I mean, there's absolutely no way. This is Alicia, and she's talking about when she got a letter in the mail a few years ago saying she owed Centrelink $17,000 from when she was studying at uni and getting Oz study. And she says there was a lot of pressure to start repaying it ASAP. We would receive these threatening phone calls um, just saying, you know, you've got a few days to pay it. If you don't pay it, you'll receive a bad credit against your name forever. And I was just like, okay, well... <laughs> Something's gone wrong. I just have to pay it. It freaked her out. And so she just got some money after a family member had died. So she used it to pay Centrelink back, even though she was sure it was wrong and she tried to appeal. That was money I had from a family member passing away and giving me inheritance. So I only had a couple of thousand left after that debt. So it probably would have made my life a lot more stress-free. If you don't remember the details from the robo-debt scheme, it was basically a computer program that looked at people who were getting Centrelink payments and how much they earned over a whole year, then it divided it by 26 and said that was a fortnightly amount that they earned. So if you earned more, say, in uni holidays and then you didn't earn much during term, it said that you owed Centrelink money back. And that's what happened to Sarah, who would work over summer. It just meant that my income sort of peaked in times and didn't. So when you do something like robo-debt, it evens out incorrectly. Then she got a letter in late 2016 saying she owed Centrelink thousands of dollars. Just three weeks before Christmas, I had this notice. Um, and it was, you know, a debt of $5,600. You know, it was the rudest, abrupt shock in the, at the most worst time in our lives. Sarah also tried to fight it but ended up on a plan to make repayments every fortnight which pushed her family to the edge financially. It was paycheck to paycheck and we were completely frugal. It was, yeah, we were like on war rations with, with what we ate until it got paid off. Then there was a class action which found that the scheme was unlawful and so all the debts were repaid in 2020. Sarah and Alicia got their money back years after paying those debts to Centrelink and they were involved in the class action. 
Then this month, they got another repayment, this one for compensation. They both got a few grand back, which is a lot more than other people. If you've just got a small repayment, you might be wondering why. The government took money from you. They are now refunding that money with a small amount of interest calculated on the length of time they held the money from you um, and the amount of money that they took from you. Dr. Darren O'Donovan is a senior lecturer in administrative law at the La Trobe University Law School. So the money this week is just the interest amount on the money that was paid back. According to Services Australia, about 45% of people caught up in the scheme who paid back wrong debts will get less than $100 back, and about 5% will get less than 10 bucks. Dr. O'Donovan says this doesn't compensate for the harm and damage on people's lives that was caused by this scheme. These amounts do not speak to the suffering because these debts had a reality even when they were on paper. Last month, the Albanese government announced a royal commission into robo-debt. Dr. O'Donovan says it's not specifically looking at the option of compensation to cover for the impact on people's lives, but it could still come up. We've got to have a royal commission that delivers reforms, not some political theatre. This has got to be anchored in the people who suffered. Hack Triple J. Joe Lauder with that update. And yeah, we're getting some messages through. Someone says it still affects my mental health. Another person, I only got 24 cents after going through hell when I was at uni. Worst time of my life. I remember being threatened that I wouldn't be allowed to travel. It's a disgrace. Somebody else says I was told I owed 32000 and 15000 and 8000 2000 I fought robo-debt and had to send seven-year-old pay slips and bank statements. Another person says I got a whole 40 bucks back for my three years of stress. We're going to stay on this as the Royal Commission gets underway. We'll keep you across all the robo-debt updates. Pack. The earth is speaking. She tells us that we have no more time. On Triple J. The Amazon, the single biggest remaining tropical rainforest in the world. And you'll often hear it described as the lungs of the planet. At least 10% of the world's known species are in the Amazon. And it's impossible to imagine just how big it is. Like it covers 40% of South America. But the Amazon is also under extreme threat with Brazil's indigenous people in a fierce battle with farmers and miners to protect their land from destruction, not just for themselves, but for all of us. And it's something we don't hear a lot about in Australia, but a new film is diving right into it. It's taken years to make. It's called The Territory and it's out now. And the film's executive producer is Chai Sui. She's one of the Indigenous people in the Amazon who's been fighting for her land. She's 25. And as you just heard before, she's been taking her pleas for help to leaders around the world. As part of the launch of our new climate change podcast, Who's Going to Save Us, we've been speaking with young people, not just here, but around the globe, who are definitely doing all they can to change things. And Chai Sui is one of those. She was recently in Australia. I caught up with her. She was speaking Portuguese, though, so we've translated it for you. Here she is. Oi, gente. Hi, it's so good being here in Australia, where I know there are lots of Indigenous peoples as well. Chai, your family's from the Amazon. It's part of your culture. Your people have lived there for thousands of years. Can you tell us more about your people, who they are, and their connection to the Amazon? 
Meu povo é o povo Paitesruí. My people are indigenous people who live in the Amazon. Our connection to the rainforest is more than just a home, it's part of who we are. The Amazon for our people is what sustains us, nurtures us, gives us water and takes care of our children. Through the forest we communicate with the spirits. Nowadays, with all of the threats that the Amazon is under, it's not only the forest that looks after us, we need to look after it. What are your people noticing about the changes in the Amazon? What is changing? Have there been dramatic things that are different now to many years ago? The animals that are our food are disappearing. The water is polluted by illegal mining and the plants that are medicine and cure our diseases are being destroyed. And when we talk about deforestation, we're not only talking about the trees, we're talking about the lives of humans. They are killing us. Who is fighting for the land? Are you able to explain? Because in Australia, a lot of people don't know what's happening in the Amazon. Who is it? It's Indigenous peoples fighting against farmers, loggers, people who want the land for themselves. Is that right? In Brazil, we're experiencing the worst times for Indigenous peoples. There's actually never been a good time for Brazil's Indigenous peoples since colonisation. It's a genocide that's happening. Not only genocide of our people, but also a mass killing of nature. We have a lot of problems with loggers, with illegal miners and with illegal cattle farming. For example, just on a tiny part of my people's land, there's 6,000 head of cattle. And the meat is then sold to Europe and the US. But that area is a sacred area for our people. It's a cemetery. And you said that it's very dangerous, that people are dying. Is it becoming more and more dangerous, more people being killed? Sim. Since I was 14, my family had to be moved and protected by the National Police Force because of the threats we were receiving. So the threats have always been present, but it's getting a lot worse and a lot more dangerous. You can see in the film what's happened to my friends. When we went to the premiere of the film in Sao Paulo, there were some Indigenous people there. My friend went out to eat something and he was bashed and ended up in hospital. That's our situation. In the Territory, it's really dangerous, especially because of the impunity and protection for those who commit these crimes. In Australia, we also have a history of Indigenous people losing their land to settlers. And some people listening to this will be able to connect to your story. Do you get support and do your people get support from other Indigenous peoples across the world? Yesterday I was in New Zealand and I received a present from the Maori. When they saw the film, they were really moved. They said that even though it took place in a different part of the world, it's a fight that they go through as well. We also showed the film in other Indigenous territories in Brazil and they felt the same, that they're going through exactly the same. But it's not only Indigenous people. We've got an amazing response from people in all parts of the world that have suffered and have had to fight for their lands against colonisation, capitalism and this system that eats up those who protect nature. It took three years to film and it was really difficult because of the threats we received. We still don't know what will happen after the people in our state see the film. 
You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese and I'm speaking with Chai Suri, a 25-year-old Indigenous activist from the Amazon in South America. And she's helped make this big new film about the destruction and battles that are happening on her homeland. Chai, you're the executive producer of this film, The Territory, but it must have been really hard initially when the filmmakers came in and were trying to gain the confidence of Indigenous people in the Amazon to cooperate to make this film. Was it a difficult thing for your people to decide to do this film? It wasn't easy because in the past, journalists have come, filmed and then just left us. They never gave us anything in return. So we were really suspicious, as you can imagine. Alex is a tall, white American, but he listened to us. We had to all agree to do the film and it took a lot of months for everyone to agree. When he was there, it was wildfire season, so the Amazon was on fire. And at one point, Alex said, stop the car, I want to film. And he disappeared into the fire. And that's when we thought, if he's crazy enough to film like that, to go through that and have that sort of courage, he can work for us, because it's not easy to film inside the forest. This is more than just a film for us, because now we can start talking about all of the important, damaging subjects impacting our lives, like like mass production, deforestation and human rights. What will be the impact on the world if we lose the Amazon? If we lose the Amazon, we condemn our future because the Amazon has the power to maintain the climactic balance of the planet. The Amazon today is going from the role of a hero to a villain because it started to account for the carbon emissions of the highest polluting countries. Brazil became the fourth most polluting country in the world and that's because of the deforestation that's taking place now. And do you think the world is taking this seriously enough? No. No, not at all. The world has not understood that we have reached a critical point now. It's not about 2030 or 2050. We have to start doing something immediately because the Amazon has almost reached a point of no return. So we are the last generation that can save the Amazon. And you're travelling around the world now. You're raising awareness. You're speaking uh, in cities around the globe. What are you hoping you can achieve? I hope the world can understand that we need the forest standing. The fight of the Indigenous peoples is to guarantee the future. But the future is now, to guarantee equality of life for all. The Indigenous peoples of the world are 5% of the total world population, including Australia. But we defend 80% of the biodiversity of the planet. Chai Sui, it's a powerful story and I'm sure a lot of people are going to want to go and watch this film. Thank you very much for coming in and for speaking with us here on Hack. I'm the one who thanks you. I'm happy to be here so far from my home. It's a pleasure to be here in Australia. A kiss to all Australians. Hack on Triple J. Yeah, and you should go check out The Territory. It is a really powerful film. You can catch it at some cinemas. You can look it up online and find out the details. We're getting some messages through. Someone says, we need to look to Indigenous leaders for environmental and ethical frameworks that can take the world into a sustainable future. It's so great to hear young people around the world taking up the fight. And remember as well, go check out Hack's new climate change podcast too. It's called Who's Going to Save Us? A new app dropped today. 
If you're a petrol head, you're going to really love this one in particular. Hack. Walking free for the first time since he was 18 years old. It was the podcast that launched the true crime genre. On Triple J. Yeah, speaking of podcasts, if you're a fan of true crime, you probably don't need me to tell you about this story. Remember Serial? When it came out, everyone was listening to it. Well, now years later, there's been a huge development. The man at the centre of that case, Adnan Syed, has been released from jail after his murder conviction was quashed. He spent more than two decades behind bars. But that's not the end of the story. And maybe you do need a little bit of a refresher. Shalala Madora has more. If you're a fan of the first season of the true crime podcast, Serial then this music is probably triggering a lot of memories right now. This is a global cell link prepaid call from... Adnan Sayed. An inmate at a Maryland Correctional Facility. The series, released in 2014 by investigative reporter Sarah Koenig, looks at the murder of 18-year-old Haman Lee in the US city of Baltimore. The cause of death was manual strangulation, meaning someone did it with their hands. In January 2019, Hay went missing. Her body was found in a park a month later. A couple weeks after that, so six weeks after she first went missing, Hay's ex-boyfriend, a guy named Adnan Sayed, was arrested for her murder. He's been in prison ever since. In February 2000, Adnan Sayed was sentenced to life in prison for her murder. The prosecution's case rested on a guy called Jay, who was Adnan's chief accuser. They backed up Jay's story with mobile phone location data. In other words, working out your location based on the pinging of nearby mobile phone towers. But it became pretty clear early on in the pod that there were huge holes in the story. So sometime in those 21 minutes, between 2.15 and 2.36, she was strangled. So it's just, it's a really tight, really window of time, I mean, for this to have taken place, right? How would he be able to strangle Hay, a tall, strong, athletic girl, quote, remove her body from the car, carry it to the trunk and place her in there in broad daylight at 2.30 in the afternoon. And then Sarah Koenig discovered that the mobile phone data didn't quite line up like the prosecution said it did. Do the records really corroborate Jay's story? Then there was the stunning revelation that a key witness, someone who said they saw Adnan at the time of the murder, hadn't been contacted at all by Adnan's lawyers. Witness Asia McLean said in a statement, I think for justice to be served, all the information needs to be on the table. Adnan's family friend, Rabia Chowdhury, who brought the story to Sarah Koenig in the first place, said his lawyer had been incompetent. How can any criminal defence attorney make the case that not contacting an alibi witness who was with you at the time that the state saying a murder occurred, like that was not ineffective? Like you cannot have anything more ineffective than that. If you were listening to the original podcast, you'll know we got to the end of more than 12 hours of material and ended up with more questions than answers. In 2015, Adnan was granted a new trial, in part due to the evidence uncovered in the podcast. Last week, things ramped up again, with lawyers saying they'd found new evidence that could undermine Adnan's conviction. The whole saga has been really rough on Haman Lee's family. Her brother told the court... This is not a podcast for me. This is real life. A never-ending nightmare for 20-plus years. 
On Monday US time, a judge overturned Adnan's murder conviction after prosecutors found two new suspects. Both had criminal records and one was a convicted serial rapist. Prosecutors also admitted the mobile phone data they'd lent on wasn't quite as reliable as they initially thought. After 23 years, Adnan Saeed is finally out of jail. But it's not necessarily the end of the story. Well, now prosecutors have to decide whether to retry Syed. The state has 30 days to decide if it wants to use the new info, including DNA evidence that wasn't available 20 years ago, to bring another case against Adnan. Heyman Lee's family just want answers. Here's her family's lawyer. My clients, all they wanted was information. They want the truth to come out. If the truth is that someone else killed their sister, daughter, they want to know that more than anybody. Hack Triple J. Shalala Madora with that update. And hey, welcome back, Shalala. We've missed her, but she's back. And we're getting through some messages on this story as well. A lot of people clearly fans of serial and true crime podcasts. Well, I want to chat a bit more about this with someone who knows a lot about true crime and this kind of storytelling. Eric George is the podcast lead here at the ABC and he's with us now. G'day, Eric. Thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me on. We've got a few messages coming through, people mentioning their favourite true crime podcasts. Some people are mentioning the Bowerville one, which I know that you worked on, Eric. You've worked on a whole bunch of podcasts, though. How big of an influence was Serial for this genre? Oh, look, it, just enormous. Um, hearing that music even in the package then was a real sense of memory for me. Uh, I, I think that, for first of all, Serial really just put podcast as a whole concept on people's radars, you know, back in, in 2014 uh, and, and really broke into the mainstream in a way that the medium had never managed to achieve before. But even in the true crime space, um, it was just so enormously influential on, you know, aesthetic, structure, the kinds of stories people were doing, the way they were doing them. And to be honest, for a while after that, it, it had this enormous influence where it felt like, uh, everyone was copying them. I'll cop to that. There was bits in the podcast I was making where it was just impossible to not be influenced by it because it was just so overwhelmingly successful. That's changed now. There's a much greater diversity of shows that are being made, but yeah, it really changed my life. It changed a lot of people's lives in the podcast space for sure. And, and it's it's kind of launched this whole true crime genre even beyond audio. TV, Netflix, a lot of stuff really felt like it was influenced by that serial aesthetic. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we're getting some more messages. Someone says it's a bit sad that sometimes podcasts are doing more work than the justice system. I wanted to ask about that because there are a lot of podcasts out there. How rare is it for something like this to happen, like a judge quashing a murder conviction? Yeah, look, it's it's enormously rare. It was a really big surprise, frankly. Similarly with the teacher's pet story a couple of weeks ago, you know, these true crime cases, you're generally either trying to get someone in jail or trying to get someone out of jail in an either direction. The odds are, are, are very slim. You know, it's, it's a really difficult thing to achieve and the wheels of the legal system move very slowly. You know, Adnan Sayed had been in jail for a long time, but even, you know, Serial had this enormous, you know, moment where it launched and created all this interest. It took eight years after that to get to this point now. Um, and so it feels often like nothing's happening when maybe things are happening in the background, but 
these are the exceptions to the rule for sure. So it was a, a really big surprise when this happened. Well, I'm wondering when you're making a podcast like this and planning it, you're starting production, how much thought goes into the legal consequences? Because obviously this kind of attention might lead to justice being served, but it could also have the opposite effect as well and could damage someone's chances. Yeah, absolutely. And look, it's worth keeping in mind that a lot of these podcasts that people are huge fans of, they start off and are often made by a very small amount of people with pretty basic technology, sometimes in their spare time. And when you're in that place, you're not thinking of where it might end up, especially at the start. Like I think no one understood where these kind of podcasts might go at the very early start of this true crime wave. Um, So it's difficult to imagine something that you're creating being played into evidence in court, but it's really important that you do. And I have to say in, in, in the podcast I've worked on, I've been very lucky to work with, you know, some really great experienced journalists and they were always super cautious because although you're not trying to be activists in these cases, you are just trying to get to the truth and try to kind of help understand what happened. You do also have to really be mindful that you're dealing with real people, real families who have had a tremendously traumatic thing happen in their lives and the last thing you want in all of this is to make things more difficult for them or to upset a process that they've been working at for a very long time so it's really important to be cautious and it seems to be the preponderance uh, it's it's very unusual to see examples where that hasn't happened right okay and just finally do, do police generally support these kinds of investigations when you're making a podcast yeah, it's an interesting question. I've, I've found that it goes both ways. I think there are clearly some police officers who are quite savvy um, and understand that they can use a podcast to gain momentum on a case that maybe has been stuck for a while to create that kind of public campaign and are willing to kind of work, not publicly, but kind of behind the scenes to, to get things rolling. On the other hand, I've certainly seen situations where they're, it's, they're completely opposite, whether it's pride for whatever reason, whether they just don't like journalists stepping on their turf. They will almost make a point of excluding anything you find in their own investigations and, and are very not fond of, of this. So I've, I've seen it go both ways for sure. Interesting. Well, we're glad to get your insights on it. ABC Audio News podcast lead, Eric George, thanks so much for coming on Hack and Breaking All That Down. Happy to do it. Thank you. And we're going to get another take on this story. And with us now is another expert, someone who works in the legal space. Associate Professor Michelle Reuters is with RMIT's Bridge of Hope Innocence Initiative. You might not know what it is. It looks at cases where a person may have been wrongfully convicted. And Michelle is with us now. Hello, Michelle. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Dave. Happy to be on board. First, were you a serial fan? Did Did you listen to this? Uh, look, I was completely addicted, like everybody else. Um, it was it was fascinating. Um, but I guess I was coming at it not so much as a consumer, although that was really interesting to me. I was addicted because I, I run an innocence project and so many of the issues in serial just really resonated. You know, the difficulties in finding new evidence, trying to get witnesses to come forward, um, tunnel vision by the police and everybody else. And so, you know, I've, I've really been cheering the result in this case because I think it will give hope to people who believe they've been wrongfully convicted, you know, to stay strong, be resilient and, and never give up. Yeah, definitely. I and mean, you're right. You would have been seeing this from a whole different lens. I'm wondering, you, you must have had some strong emotions when you saw the news this morning. To explain to people, the decision doesn't mean that Adnan Syed is innocent, right? Like, what's the difference between what's happened here and for him to be exonerated? Okay, so what's happened at the moment is Adnan's been released on home detention while the prosecution decide their next action. 
and and I'm with everybody else. I would have thought they would have decided that by now. But from what I can understand, um, the prosecution are waiting for DNA results. And when they get that, they'll make a decision about whether or not they'll seek a new trial or dismiss the case and then certify his innocence. And if they certify his innocence, that will be an exoneration. Right. And it, it, that would be obviously preferable to a retrial for the obvious reason, but also the best outcome of a retrial would be to be found not guilty. And that's not the same as being found absolutely innocent. Right. Interesting. Do we know how common it is for someone to be wrongfully convicted of something? We have no idea. And, and that's, a, that's a big problem. We, we can try an estimate based on US research, which I think some experts have put around 3% of all convictions. But the reality is we, we just have no way of finding out. We tend to only hear about the high profile cases or the ones involving, you know, really serious criminal activity. But we don't hear about the wrongful convictions based on false guilty pleas, convictions where people just didn't have the capacity to write the ask questions of their own lawyers, or just lack the resources to challenge the charges or the convictions in any way. Even the estimates, like crazy figures there. I want to ask you about something else, Associate Professor Michelle Reuter from RMIT. Something New South Wales is looking at. It's bringing in, or it's looking at bringing in what's called a nobody, no parole rule. It basically means that killers won't be able to get parole unless they reveal the whereabouts of their victims' remains. There's a lot of attention on this in New South Wales after the recent Chris Dawson case, but I know that you've researched this extensively. Does this work? No, I'll just be blunt. Um, so in, in New South Wales, New South Wales already have provisions that require their parole authority to look at the prisoners' cooperation in locating victims' remains. But they want to beef up their, um, those provisions to be in line with other states. And what they want to do is mandate that parole be denied if prisoners fail to cooperate. Because what these laws do is give prisoners an incentive to give that information about um, their victims' remains. And parole bodies have to be satisfied about the, the level and quality of their cooperation. But what we found, uh, we, we've only looked at Queensland so far because Queensland is one of the only states that publish their decisions. And what we found is of the 10 decisions that we looked at, even though six of those um, prisoners had provided satisfactory cooperation, it didn't lead to any information. Um, and the net result is that. Um, you know, the victims' families continue to suffer. They, they, um, these schemes really haven't stopped to consider the impact of false hope, which we think is promised by nobody, no parole regimes, and the impact of re-traumatisation on victims' families. Right. That's so interesting. I want, do other parts of the country do this, the nobody, no parole rule? Yes, if, if New South Wales come on board, this will be six jurisdictions. Um, so it's it's quite extensive. They're quite similar in operation. There's some, you know, differences in terminology, but the effect of it is the same. It's it's holding out an incentive for cooperation. And what they're doing is promising something that it looks as if they just can't deliver on. Oh, it's, it's interesting stuff and something that I'm sure people want to hear about and want to keep on top of is these rules and proposed laws move through Parliament and, you know, people talk about it in the media. But we appreciate your insight into this. Associate Professor Michelle Reuter from RMIT's Bridge of Hope Innocence Initiative. Thank you very much for joining us on Hack this afternoon. 
My pleasure. Hack on Triple J. Huge thanks to all of our guests on the Hack podcast for today, including Associate Professor Michelle Reuters. That's all we've got time for. I'll be back tomorrow. I'll catch you then.